cleared the ground, filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Just before we, uh, we read chapter 5, uh, you're all uh, people who are engaged in, in our world of multicultural. Has anyone ever played that game? I've forgotten the name of it, but it's, it's the game that's about logos. It's like a board game. You, you get a card in and you can get a, an electronic version and uh, it shows you the logo. And you, from the branding, can tell what it's talking about. That even a slightly strange abstract thing can represent something so profound. So you, if you know that Coca-Cola has that sign and um, that VW on the front of a car, you know, is a Volkswagen and so forth. Uh, so we know that, that symbols represent greater things. Uh, in modern popular and political life, there are, there are various uh, symbols that um, uh, are used and represent. So if, if I was to, this is just a, an opening question, if I was to, to talk about a political cartoon and in the political cartoon was a bear and an eagle and a bulldog, is it about pets? No, what do they represent? I'll put you on the spot. The bear is Russia, the eagle is, and the bulldog is, yeah. That you see from an image, there's a whole lot caught up. In, uh, in Psalm 80, uh, that we have uh, just read, there's the image of the vineyard. It's one of those images that weaves its way through the scriptures, and Isaiah picks up the same thing. And it's not just a vineyard, but the vineyard has come to represent God's people. So verse, chapter 5, verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and, and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated 
and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed. For righteousness but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an epath of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They, are, they have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. No respect for the work of his hands. Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger. And common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore death will ex- expand its jaws. Opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses. With all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. And the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work. Who Uh, So we may see it, the plan of the Holy One of Israel. Let it approach, let it come into view, so you may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe uh, but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, spurned the words of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one of them slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist, nor a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp or their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of a lion. They roar like, a young, like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there is only, one, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by the clouds. Chapters 2 to 5 of Isaiah um, are a unit. But chapter 5 is, is quite different. 
to the first chapters we've looked at. The first two chapters, chapter two, three, and four particularly, were uh, kind of harsh. And you may say this one sounds like it too. But, but as I kind of, uh, under the influence of God in the, the prophecy we have recorded, instead turns to sing in song. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. It's, it's a song about wine and vineyards. I don't know if you noticed the, the repeated theme of, of wine coming through. Yeah. And I wonder what tune you might set it to. I wonder uh, if it would be uh, a sing-along kind of tune. It's singing about love. Tapping the feet, drinking wine. Who's going to see Mamma Mia too soon? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went uh, with, a, uh, with someone, and um, somewhere I've always been meaning to visit, because I've passed by this place most a few times a week, is Little Oak Vineyard on the Shipston Road, just before the railway bridge. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, it's Camden's very own vineyard. I've driven past it, everyone's going, really? The vineyard in Camden? There is a vineyard in Camden. And uh, I, I thought on a sunny afternoon, it'd be great to go in. There's always a sign saying, Little Oak Vineyard, open, visitors welcome. So I thought, Saturday afternoon, sun shining, I'll go in and see the vineyard. So in we go, and uh, not really knowing what to expect other than vines, because that's what a vineyard is about. And uh, went in, and there's a, a little kind of bungalow house, a few bits of flower bed and garden, and then there are the, the lines of vines. And uh, I, I didn't really know how big this place was. It's not particularly big. And kind of pulled up on the gravel, got out of the car, and over-sauntered Stephen. Stephen's in his 60s, retired. And he said, hello. And he said, hello. Is it okay to look around? Of course it is. Let me show you around. Stephen's the owner in case you're wondering. And uh, Stephen said he moved here about 15 years ago, having uh, worked in um, sort of chemical engineering. And uh, his retirement, he'd bought this place just near the railway bridge. He'd bought this place and he'd moved in. It was a lovely place to live, he said. And uh, there was this big paddock out the back. And the people that had had been there before had... um, uh, they'd, They'd kept kind of livestock, horses, and it was just a great kind of hectare of land for horses. But he didn't really want to do that and didn't like it. And it started to grow weeds, as places do. And particularly thistles. And apparently, I didn't know this, but it's illegal to let thistles flower. So he said, I used to have to call people in to come and mow this big paddock to stop the thistles flowering. And he realized that he was spending money on this piece of land which wasn't doing anything. And he thought, I know I like a glass of wine. I'll plant some vines. Have any of you got vines? Take a while. So he said he went and he bought six vines in the the local garden center and he sort of read up about what you meant to do with them and he planted these six vines. And it was a little bit of an experiment to see which of them would grow best and which of them would produce 
a best crop. So he, he prepared the ground and he planted the vines and, uh, and trained them. And it takes quite a long time for them to grow and be trained. And eventually uh, one year came along where the vines produced flowers and the flowers produced grapes and the grapes produced a harvest. And he was delighted and he picked his grapes and all six produced grapes didn't help him choose which one he wanted. So, But over the number of years that he'd done this, he thought well, there's a lot of land here, and, uh, and he researched and found out about the soil type, and he, he worked out that there were particular types of, two types of grapes that would really grow well in Chipping Camden to start a vineyard. So what did he do? And he tended the ground, he prepared the ground, and he planted the vines, these little stalks and stumps, and he learned along the way how to grow them, how to train them, the techniques, to, you know, this two-branch training or single-branch training. He did tell me, but I can't quite remember the details. And he started with a goal in mind, to harvest the grapes and make wine. He liked wine and he wanted to make wine that he could drink. But he was realizing that he had more wine than probably he should drink, you get (laughs) my gist. But he planted more and now he has these long, long, Lines of vines. And as I was with Stephen, and as I walked around with him, you could see that he'd been out that morning with his pruning shears, and he checked on the flowers, and there's this gentle aroma of flowering grapes. Now, if you've ever smelt it, the beautiful aroma. And he loved his vine. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and and cut out a wine press as well. And and then he looked for a crop of good grapes. Stephen told me how he would protect against the frost. And he installed this clever watering system. And he told me one of the, the drawbacks of, uh, of grapes growing in this climate is because in September, if it's sunny, the, 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 the sugars go up, but the acidity needs to be at a certain level, and it's all you know, it kind of finely balanced. If there's late frost, oh dear, and if there's you know, a damp or, um, September, it might be all, you know, they don't have to pick in October, and, and what's that going to do? And it's all like just an art. But he really loves his vines, and he works at them. And looks forward to the harvest and goes up to the pub at Ebrington in September and says it's coming and coming. And a group of volunteers come and they cut all the, uh, the, the, the vines and the grapes and they put them in a, a cart, not a cart, you know, track trailer. And they take them off for, for being turned in, into wine. And he was excited the weekend that I was there because in two weeks... The vintage of last year will be ready. The thing is, as Isaiah writes, and we're told really clearly, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah, the vines he delights in. It's not just industrial cropping, but a labor of love. It's not just fly by night, but an intention and an investment and a time taken to nurture 
and cherish and cajole and coax and train until a harvest and a fruitfulness is brought. And I suspect Stephen, well, I don't know, but maybe he's wandered around the vineyards humming some tunes as he works. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. If the first few chapters of the, uh, of the, uh, of, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah have seemed harsh and uh, of the Lord God Almighty and it's a strident word of judgment, chapter 5 interposes and interjects and reminds us that judgment, the prophetic word of judgment, repent and turn back to me, is given from a heart of love. Because the cutting words come at verse 2 at the end. He looked for a good crop of grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And says, after all this investment, I will take down the walls that protect it. I will allow it to be overrun. Psalm, uh, Isaiah 5 is, is written sometime after Psalm 80, probably. But there's a little bit of a wordplay in Psalm 80 that, that links to chapter 4 just before. And that's the word, as you heard, as the psalmist sung another song about a vineyard. It talks about, uh, in verse 15, as we read, it talks about, just flick back. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. The word in Hebrew, therefore, the word sun, can also be described as a fresh branch. Chapter 4 of Isaiah talks about the branch of the Lord, a fresh branch of heaven in Jerusalem, a fresh sun. The sun, obviously, being in this time, this understanding in the era of kings, would be a human king reigning and ruling in Jerusalem, but one that is not corrupt and leading people astray, but a fresh branch, a fresh sun that will be raised up, that will be trained and calm and establish the true vine again. You see, as the Lord looked at, at Jerusalem and Judah, the people that he had set apart, they were fruitless vines, not producing red wine, lush and wholesome to be enjoyed, but bloodshed. In verse 7, not the sweet taste of the mouth, but rather the ears crying with injustice and oppression, and again, there's some wordplay going on there in Hebrew. The Lord's, the planter of the vineyard, the sustainer, the nurturer, has deep love, but it's unrequited. And as such, the Lord calls time. As I walked around the vineyard with Stephen, Right at the top end in some of the oldest vines, and they were established and flowering, and he said, look, here's, here's where they're, they're going to set, and here's where I've trained the branches and the fresh growth. And, and this, this vineyard will produce about 8,000 bottles, two and a half acres. 
And it's kind of nice, a nice white and a sparkling kind of champagne. I'm not on commission. All that hard work, the harvest, sending it off to be made, looking forward for the day the bottles come back. And as we're walking around on the edge of the vineyard, we're walking down this one aisle. And uh, I said, what's happened to this vine? And he said, what do you mean? And he looked around and, and there was one vine on the row that had suddenly just wilted. He said, I didn't see that this morning. And then I was like, oh, what's going on? And he kind of looked at it, at this vine, like, that's not right. And he looked at the vines around and he was like looking for little creatures that might have burrowed or wind damage or deer damage and he couldn't see any of that. And he was, he was slightly perplexed because this one vine was wilting and was sickly. And he said, right, I'm going to have to take a sample and send it off to pathology because if this vine is diseased, there's a danger for the rest. But he was like, I, I, it doesn't appear to have any mites or bugs No leaf wilting, browning. But he scratched his head. We walked back and you could see he was mulling it over. We got to his house and he was going to give us a little sample try. He does that of the wine. I am on commission. You know what he did? A colleague came in. He said, there's a vine on that row at the top. Take the secateurs and cut it out. I thought, what a decision for a vine that he'd planted that had been growing for 12, 13, 14 years, that one of the earliest, one of the founding part of the vineyard. But he knew that that vine was wilting, wouldn't produce a crop, and was in danger of diseasing the rest. Cut it out. One snip. Gone. And I was like... That's been a labor of love. But he knew for the sake of the health of the vineyard, it needed to be pruned. It's a bit like, I think, as I read this this chapter, something of the effort and the intention and the cultivation, the time and the patience, the passion. Stephen loved his wine. To do the best he could. But in chapter 5 verse 8. Suddenly there's a change of key. From major to minor. From this is the song. I will sing for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Chapter 5 verse 8. Begins a series of woes. Six of them. The sweet song suddenly turning sour, no longer tolerating unfruitfulness. Clear the ground. Remove the dead wood. Remove the diseased in order to prepare the ground for a better branch, a better sun to grow. It's really noticeable that these six woes are picked up by Jesus in Matthew 23 when he has a chapter just before his arrest and his betrayal and crucifixion, where he speaks of woes in Jerusalem. Woe to you, for you lead my people astray. 
And it's really telling, isn't it, that, that, that just before that, that, in chapter 23, in the six woes of, of Jesus, there's a parable of the vineyard and a parable of the, the tenants who work the vineyards. Do you remember that the vineyard is a sign of something else, like the bear and the eagle and the bulldog? The woes seem to point to how far and how simply and profoundly the people of God had strayed. Yes, they were diligent in the religious actions of going to the temple and presenting the sacrifices and and singing the hymns and the songs and so forth, of of doing the right thing in the right time in the right way of being shown to be righteous. But the pruning shears are brought for deeper reasons. Woes, we're told, for materialism, for the wealth of citizens that that have broken God's law and forcing neighbors to sell their inheritance. In other words, of greed, of getting more and more, of joining fields. Remember, if you've ever read Leviticus and some of the Old Testament, they're told to leave gaps between fields so that the poor and the, the outsiders, the asylum seekers, had a place to go to feed. But the rich get richer and the poor are marginalized. Sounds fairly contemporary. Injustice, inequality growing. He says in this vineyard, three bottles will be produced per acre, a tenth of the harvest. Remember I told you that that our dear friends up in, in Chipping Camden, they have two and a half acres and produce 8,000 bottles. The picture of desolation, three bottles, a bath per acre. If you flip it on its head, if materialism of greed, of accumulating more for the, at the expense of the lost, how do you flip that over? What would be the godly way? Well, fruitfulness in the vineyard would seem to be expansive generosity of making space and time and welcoming in the stranger and the poor of not shutting out. I'm heading to New Wine on Friday. My non-Christian friend says, is that that wine tasting festival you go to every year? She knows it's not, but that's her joke. The theme of wine is, is through here that there's an abuse of wine. They're abusing alcohol. And as they do so in the gift that God has given, they're thinking less and less about God and more and more about the next drink. Chapter 1, verse 17 talks about learning to do right. Anything that we take in that causes us to think more and more about it and less and less about God, I think would bring something of a woe. I wonder what that might be. Could still be wine, particularly at New Wine. But that which, Kate, sorry, 
But something that we take in and causes us to think less and less about God. I wonder if we've become media junkies. I wonder if we've become so used to imbibing the news culture and that sets our agenda or the Twitter culture and that sets our agenda and it causes us to think less and less about God. Or the glossy magazines or the celebrity programs or whatever it happens to be, substances that we want more and more, it becomes an addiction even for the religious. We hear in the prophetic word the call to repent and turn back. The third woe is imagining God is blind to sinfulness. The cunningness and deceitfulness and putting on a good show would mask what is hidden deep within. But God sees far more, verses 8 to 19. 18 to 19. In chapter uh, verse 20, uh, again, a real challenge for our age. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, of turning the meaning of words to mean something else, of abstracting truth and saying it's all relative. We've heard so much, even this week, of fake news when it doesn't fit in, of everything being relativized, of there's no longer an absolute, a moral right, it's what's right for you. Well, our culture may be choosing that, but are we, are we as people of God saying, yeah, we'll just sit loosely and lightly. I'm not talking about proof texting. I'm not being, talking about being simplistic with Scripture. But I am saying we have been given the words of God through the prophetic word and the revelation of Jesus Christ through the New Testament and that we are not at liberty to disregard. The example and the warning from the old is woe if we do. There's linked in in verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight, those who would think they know better than God. I'm astonished sometimes when I I read the wisdom of Scripture and see it's not been bested or bettered. Many would say it's outdated and outmoded and a vestige of a funny culture at a funny time in the ancient histories. But you know what? It still rings true. It's still appropriate to every culture in every time in every place. The wise fear the Lord. And the sixth woe in verses 22 to 25, forgetting their holy calling that God gave them, that they are better at drinking wine than thinking on the scriptures, better at mixing drinks than a thirst for his word, better at accepting bribes than their calling to be the vine. The finale of the song reminds us of this banner over the nations, this calling of others who will come and enact judgment upon this failing vineyard, this vineyard of bad fruit, this vineyard tended in love, but has turned sour. The Arameans and the Assyrians and the Babylonians will become God's pruners. 
And as chapter 5 closes, and the astonishing chapter 6 begins, of a great majestic vision. I want us to remember and see that this is framed as a song of hope. It's a song that is calling time on fruitlessness and says, prepare the way for the new branch. Prepare the way for the new sun. Prepare the way for the fresh branch who will establish the vineyard and the vine into which many will be grafted. Jesus himself, chapter 15 of John, I am the true vine. Abide in me. Let's pray.